You're listening to The Living Word with Danny Hodges of Calvary Chapel Fellowship in St. Pete. It doesn't lessen our responsibility as a church to share the message and to carry out the Great Commission. But in my Baptist background, sometimes it was so preached to us that we got to share Jesus with everybody we can that you almost shared sometimes out of guilt. And that's the wrong motivation to share Christ. So it doesn't lessen our responsibility, but our motive to share Christ is the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us. What motivates you to share the gospel? Some of us may have grown up under a more works-based understanding of Christianity, and you feel a constant pressure to do deeds in order to earn God's love. Or perhaps you can relate to Pastor Danny's feelings of guilt. As he explains in today's message, that's not why you should share the gospel. When you contemplate the incredible grace and love that Jesus has poured out on you, that alone should be your motivation to share it with the world. Now here's Pastor Danny in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, as he begins his message, Last Call. Chapter 14, verse 6 is where we are. John the Apostle says, Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed. A lot of things happening right here. Third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury which has been poured out full strength into the cup of his wrath. He'll be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. I don't like it any better than you do, but the Bible tells us that those who reject the grace of God found in the sacrifice of Jesus will suffer eternal damnation. They don't have to. It's their choice when they reject The grace of God found only in Jesus Christ. And the smoke of their torment, verse 11, rises forever and ever. There's no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful 
to Jesus. Those that are saved during this period known as the great tribulation. We've already seen in our study of Revelation, Israel will be purged. Israelites, many of them, ultimately all of them that are left after the purging will be saved. A host of Gentiles get saved. And in their commitment to Christ, in this coming day, there is great cost. And I heard a voice from heaven say, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Kind of giving us a clue. It costs them their very life. Yes, says the spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. Verse 14, John says, now I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold, crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. The title son of man comes from Daniel chapter seven. It's a messianic title. So this is Jesus. Then another angel came out of the temple, called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud. Take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple. A lot of angelic activity going on here. This angel, he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle, gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridle. That's a lot of blood. For a distance of 1,600 stadia or about 180 miles. One person calculated and in calculating disproved they thought the word of God saying that in the area of this battle, and these people die in, in the place where it happens, called the Valley of Megiddo. It's the Battle of Armageddon. We're not studying that today. We'll study it in more detail in future chapters. But in the plain of Megiddo, somebody calculated that if all humans in the world gave their blood, that the blood of all humans on the earth would not rise to the horse's bridle. Well, I appreciate that. But he's not talking about the blood flowing in the whole valley of Megiddo. He's talking about the blood flowing in a time of warfare in the trenches that are dug for battle. It's still a lot of blood. Alistair Begg had the greatest word for us in a pastor's workshop years ago at a conference I was at. One of those nuggets that I'll never forget. He said as a pastor, the text will tell you what to say. You just have to decide how to say it. And so I've worked very hard to discover what does this text say to us? And the way I've chosen to say it is in five points, which whenever we do that, it helps you to know when lunch is close. (laughs) The first is the final offer of salvation. I don't know why I didn't see it for the years, for years and years and years. My background denominationally is Baptist. 
my Baptist denominational background was very heavy on the Great Commission. Very very heavy on the responsibility we as Christians have in evangelism, in sharing Christ with the world. And I was taught as a young Christian that the Great Commission must be fulfilled before the end of the world as we know it and before the second coming of Christ. But I wonder why nobody showed me this text. An angel with the eternal gospel to every nation, tribe, language, and people. That's the whole world. You match that scripture up with Matthew chapter 24. And Matthew chapter 24 is the answer to the disciples' question to Jesus. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And he tells us a bunch of things in Matthew 24. For the point today, I want you to hone in on verse 14 of Matthew 24. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. That's what we just read in Revelation 14. It doesn't lessen our responsibility as a church to share the message and to carry out the great commission. But in my Baptist background, sometimes it was so preached to us that we got to share Jesus with everybody we can that you almost shared sometimes out of guilt. And that's the wrong motivation to share Christ. So it doesn't lessen our responsibility, but our motive to share Christ is the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us. And so it still is our responsibility, the Great Commission. But if I understand my Bible more correctly now, and I take Matthew 24, 14, and I match it up with Revelation 14, the final evangelistic thrust to the whole world is not through the church. It's by an angel. And nobody is going to be missed. And everybody is going to hear. He says it in a loud voice. He has the eternal gospel. Fascinating. The eternal gospel. Titus 1-2. God promised it before the beginning of time. Put that in your pea brain on a starry night and meditate on it. Before time began, which is something to meditate on. What did it look like before time began? I don't know. But before time began, before God created anything, it was just God. And he made a promise. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit got together and said, here's what's going to happen. We're going to create, and we're going to create man, and we're going to put man in the garden, and we're going to marry them, and Adam and Eve, and they're going to be in paradise, and and yet they're going to blow it. And because they blow it, sin comes upon the whole human race. But we got a plan, and we promise, we promise And the son, who was the word then, who became flesh, agreed, yeah, let's do it. And the plan was laid out before the beginning of time. Fascinating. And this angel is is going around the world in this final moment of human history, just before Jesus returns in his second coming. And he's sharing the eternal gospel. It's the final offer of salvation. And we're already to our second point from the text. What is God saying? It's the final prophetic declaration. Verse 8, a second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. 
Babylon the Great. That is a clue. Because when we get, get to Revelation 17, you're going to see Babylon the Great again. There, Babylon the Great is described as a prostitute, not just a prostitute, the mother of all prostitutes. She sits upon many waters. That's interesting. We've learned in Revelation the many waters represent peoples, nations, languages, worldwide. And yet in Revelation 17, there's also a, a literal city. She sits on seven hills, verse 9 of Revelation 17. Scholars throughout history agree that seems to refer to Rome. Well, we know there's going to be a revived Roman Empire. The Antichrist is going to rule over the revived Roman Empire. And this revived Roman Empire somehow represents Babylon the Great, the mother of all prostitutes. So there's a literal ancient Babylon. There's a literal future Babylon that seems to refer to a revived Roman Empire. But there's also a spiritual Babylon, and that is... Babylon the Great. We need to understand if we want to hear what God has to say in this text, what is Babylon the Great? Because Babylon the Great, the prophecy is, the declaration is, fallen, fallen. God says it twice, it's sure to happen. She's going down. Now it was prophesied that ancient Babylon would go down, never to be rebuilt again. Jeremiah 50, completely destroy her, leave her no remnant. It'll never again be inhabited or lived in as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, so no one will live there. Chapter 51 of Jeremiah, you'll be desolate forever, declares the Lord. Uh, Babylon, verse 37, will be a heap of ruins, a place where no one lives. Isaiah 13, same prophecy. Verse 19, Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. My Old Testament prophet, um, uh, professor, prof. Ed Heinzen from Liberty. He'll be back with us again in October. I can't wait. His book on Revelation. Let me just read his comments on ancient Babylon. Page 156. Proponents argue that ancient Babylon, which has been in ruins for centuries in fulfillment of the prophecies of the Bible, will be rebuilt on a grand scale and become the political and economic center of the planet and the capital of the Antichrist all within the first half of the tribulation. He obviously doesn't agree with those who suggest that. The city fell in one night to Cyrus the Persian in 539 B.C. Later in 482 B.C., the Persian king Xerxes totally demolished Babylon and burned it. Attempts to rebuild Babylon by Alexander the Great in 331 B.C. and Antiochus Epiphanes in 173 B.C. both failed. By 24 B.C., Strabo described Babylon as empty and desolate. In A.D. 116, the Roman emperor Trajan stopped there and reported he found nothing but ruins. Left behind, listen, was the largest mound of ruins in the ancient world. Thus, the name Babylon, once associated with greatness and splendor, came to refer to great ruins to the people of John's day when the Revelation was written. Ancient Babylon has been destroyed. A future literal Babylon, a revived Roman Empire, will also fall. But there's this also mysterious and yet real Babylon the Great. What is Babylon the Great? 
Well, you're asking all the right questions to find the answers. Now go with me to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, and you'll get our best clue in understanding what is Babylon the Great. Genesis 11, verse 1. Here's the record. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech years ago. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar, and they settled there. Shinar is ancient geographical Babylon. They said to each other, come and let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone. Pause. They used brick instead of stone. Why? Brick is man-made. There's a message here. Stone is God-made. They used something man-made and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves, not for God, and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. And the Lord said, if there's one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. And God is saying, I don't like what they're doing. This is not a good thing. This is bad. I'm going to put a stop to it. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. Kind of hard to build something together if you don't know what the other person's saying. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth. This is where the languages came from. And they stopped building The city, heaven's mission accomplished. That is why it was called Babel. Because God confused the languages. And you're going, man, I used to know what you were saying, but what what kind of language are you saying? What are you talking? I don't understand you. It's just Babel to me. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. And from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This is Babylon. This is where it all started. Where what all started? Where the world got together. The world of people got together and decided we're going to build something, but we're going to leave God out of the equation. The tower they're building to the heavens, they were worshiping the heavens. They worship the creation instead of the creator. Once you do that, everything goes downhill from there. This is where every single false religion originated. This is where every single pursuit, every single endeavor, every desire of man coming together to do something, but leaving God out of the equation. Let me put it on very layman terms that anybody can understand. This is the world. And Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes, sitting on many waters, it's worldwide. It is a system. It is a spirit. It is a people that in their lives, their goals, their desires, their pursuits, their achievement, everything, everything they do. God is not in the equation. You talk about practical. 
Here's the declaration from our text in Revelation 14. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. First, the eternal gospel is proclaimed. You can be saved. Jesus died for your sins. And now, the declaration. Babylon. The world. And everything about the world is about to be shut down. Now, hang with me. You got to really, this is... So practical. If you read the text and compare the text, this mother of prostitutes, this Babylon the Great, she is drunk from the blood of the saints. She hates the saints. Jesus said in John chapter 15, you're not of the world any more than I'm of the world. The reason the world hates you is because it hated me. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. James chapter 4, listen to what James says. Now it's strong, but sometimes you need to hear the strong (laughs) sometimes we need to hear it. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Now let's take it another step to, to bring it really, really right down to where we live. John put it this way in 1 John chapter 2, 15 to 17. Don't love the world nor anything in the world for everything in the world is not from the Father, from the world. And if, and if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. And then he describes it. I mean, he itemizes it. Here's what's in the world. Lust of the flesh. Boy, is that practical. I want to gratify my desire. And if it's a girlfriend or a boyfriend, and I don't have to worry about sexual sin because God's not in the equation. When God's not in the equation, I'm going to have what I want. I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to enjoy it. Right? Whatever it is. Whether it's sexual immorality, whatever it is. That's the lust of the flesh. But that's the world. That's the world. The lust of the eyes. And you see, the grass is greener over there. But yeah, but does God want you to go over there? Is that what God wants? You see, you leave God out of the equation. and You go, oh man, that's that's it right there. And you just follow your eyes. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. Third thing he says in the world is the pride of life. Oh man, I'm going to be a rock star. I'm going to be somebody. Or whatever glory it is. It's that thing of glory, but it's it's the world. Now you're really not going to like it. Ephesians chapter 2. Oh, do we need to hear it. I need to hear it. Ephesians 2 verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. We were headed for hell. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Now, I want you to understand who he's talking about here because he says all of us, all of us. He's talking about the Danny Hodges who was a party animal before I committed my life to Christ. But he's also talking about people like the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler was a respectable guy. He wasn't a party animal like me. He wouldn't have hung out with people like me. But he comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. He said, well, I've kept these. I'm a good person. 
And Jesus said, one more thing you lack. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and come and follow me. And you'll have great treasure in heaven. The book of Revelation isn't a pleasant book to study. It lays out for you the end of the world as you know it right now, and the devastation that will be falling on the world is overwhelming, and it can make you ache for the people who will have to endure it. It can also make you long for everyone you know to seek and find Jesus right now. Only He can save the people of the world from this terrible end, and His grace is available right now to everyone. Today, let Jesus bring to mind those friends, family, and even acquaintances that you can be praying for and actively sharing His gospel message with. We know this isn't an easy task, so we'd like to support you in prayer. Please email us at info at ccfstpete.church. We're so glad you tuned in today to The Living Word. Pastor Danny will continue this verse-by-verse study of Revelation in our next edition of The Living Word. But right now, you can hear more by visiting our website, ccfstpete.church. There you'll also learn more about Pastor Danny and the church these messages originate from, Calvary Chapel Fellowship. We'd love to meet you, so if you're in the area, please come join us for one of our weekend services. We gather each Saturday and Sunday to worship the Lord and learn from His Word, and we'd be honored to share that time with you. Be sure to stop Pastor Danny and let him know that you're a listener. You'll find all the information you need at ccfstpete.church. That's all we have for today. Tune in next time for more from the book of Revelation, right here on The Living Word. 